particularly at 9.30 in the morning. So um, I was kind of hoping that uh, maybe, Audra, we could have that organ going in the background while I'm preaching over here. Um, that would be kind of exciting. You could just sort of fill it in in the spots, you know. So, well, welcome. I'm glad you're here this morning. Why don't you grab your Bible and open up to 1 Corinthians 15. I love Easter Sunday. Beautiful weather outside, and uh, if you're, uh, most of you that have kids are probably aware of this, but we do have an Easter egg hunt at 1030 right after this, so we'll be uh, prepping for that um, at about 1020, and then the kids will be uh, hunting eggs over on the, the side of the property over here, so that should be a fun time uh, in between services. Well, in the, uh, in the western United States, um, there is a line that runs all the way along the Rocky Mountains um, that divides our entire continent in two. It goes through the United States, but actually extends all the way up through Canada to, into Alaska and up to the Bering Sea up there. And then it runs south from, the, from New Mexico down through Central America and into South America all the way down into Chile. This is called the Continental Divide. If you're an elementary teacher, I am sure you have heard of the Continental Divide before. But the basic idea of this Continental Divide is that if it rains on the eastern side of this line, of this divide, then eventually that water will flow into some tributary and will end up in either the Gulf of Mexico or in the Atlantic Ocean. And if it rains on the western side of this divide, then the water that falls there will end up in the Pacific Ocean. Now what's so amazing about this is, it's not like this line is miles and miles and miles wide. It's actually quite small. There's a, there's a top to this, and it can fall on one side or the other. And on either side of this divide, there are thousands of waterways. There are rivers, there are creeks, and it doesn't matter where the water ends up, eventually it will, or it doesn't matter which tributary it goes into, eventually it will end up in the, the Atlantic Ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, or in the Pacific Ocean. It could be in any of these tributaries. Whether it's the Mississippi River or Tinker Creek on your family farm, the final destination is the same depending on which side of this divide it falls on. And if it's raining over the Continental Divide, then water could fall literally a few feet away from each other. This, the raindrops could be here versus here, and it would end up in an entirely different destination, an entirely different ocean, thousands of miles apart. Now, this sort of stark divide, I'll show you this, this uh, Continental Divide here. You can see it runs all the way from Montana, Wyoming, down through into New Mexico. But this sort of stark divide with the destinations being so far apart is even more evident when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the question that divides everything, right? Did a man, a physical human being, a historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, who there's no doubt that this guy lived, I mean, you would have to really shut your eyes to any sort of historical data, any sort of historical reliability, and reject common logic to believe that this guy didn't live. So this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who died on a Roman cross, 
which is pretty indisputable as well, 2,000 years ago, did this man actually walk out of the grave? Did he rise from the dead? I mean, that is the question. And the answer that you this morning give to that question puts you on one side of the divide or the other. You can't straddle the divide. The raindrops fall on one side or the other. Now, at first, that question may not seem to make that much of a difference, right? I mean, who really cares to my day-to-day life? Why does it matter? I mean, you may answer that differently, and your life may look just initially the same as someone who, who answers it another way. And you may think it really doesn't matter that much to my life whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. But the final destination will be dramatically different. It will be as different as water going into two different oceans, depending on how you this morning, this morning answer that question. And so I want to put that question in no uncertain terms, a stark contrast this morning in how you, you ask it and how you answer it. And I want you to be honest with yourself this morning as you're sitting there. We have a few minutes together this morning. You showed up here on Easter Sunday. Thank you for being here. So be honest with yourself because it makes a world of difference for your life this coming week and for your eternal destination. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead 2,000 years ago? Did that actually happen? Now, I know it's easy sitting there to, because you're in church, <laughs> to sort of give a, a tacit affirmation of that. Well, yeah, I think that's really what happened. Sure, yeah, I believe that. But I want you to spend the next few minutes honestly thinking this through and assessing whether your life reflects the yes answer that maybe you just gave to that. Maybe you gave a no answer. And I want to spend the next few minutes thinking through the ramifications if Jesus didn't walk out of that grave? Why does that make such a difference in our lives? I want to show you what happens if he didn't rise from the dead. I want to trace out the no answer, give you some logical results. And we're going to do this by looking at 1 Corinthians 15. So you can open up there if you're not there this morning. 1 Corinthians 15. The page number for the Bible in the pew should be listed in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you, but 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to be uh, looking at verses 12 through 19, and I'm going to give you four consequences if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, right? Four consequences if Jesus did not rise from the dead. And the first one of these is there's nothing past this life. This is it. You're 80 or so years, this is all you get, and then it's the great big black nothingness. Now, as we get into this passage, and verse 12 is where we're going to start in particular, I want you to sort of get a running start and understand what Paul is doing as he's laying out these consequences, all right? It's important that you go back to the beginning of chapter 15, and you see that Paul is explaining the gospel here. So any talk of the resurrection is, an, is a part of explaining the good news, the gospel. Look back to verses 1 and 2. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, he's speaking to Christians here, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And so Paul is going to remind them of the core of their faith, the gospel, the good news. 
And as he reminds them of the gospel here, in this passage, he focuses most intently on the resurrection as a major part of that good news. He talks about other things, but the resurrection is the core of what he wants to talk about. Look at verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. In verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so you've got several elements of the gospel here, but the basic makeup is Christ died for our sins, and he rose, he was buried and rose bodily from the grave on the third day. Then, in verses 5 through 11, and we won't read through all of those, Paul goes on to explain that Jesus rose from the dead and that lots and lots of people saw him. Over 500 witnesses saw him in person, bodily, risen from the dead. And so all of this together, this message of Christ dying for our sins and then of the historicity of the resurrection that actually happened, this is the core of Paul's message of the gospel. Look at verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. This was the message that he was preaching to them about the resurrection. So in verse 12, with the resurrection as sort of the core of this message of the gospel, in verse 12, he says this, Now, if Christ is proclaimed, as Paul was doing, as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so what's happening here is some of them are being tempted to believe that there really isn't a resurrection bodily from the dead. And most likely what's happened here is some in the Corinthian church were being influenced by Greek philosophical ideas, beliefs, and they were sort of drifting back into what they had believed before they came to Christ. And in that philosophy, there was a denial of any sort of resurrection from the dead, This life was sort of all you got. And of course, Paul says the problem with that is if you deny that there's any sort of resurrection from the dead, then you can't have Christ's resurrection either. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, I suppose it's possible to deny Christ's resurrection from the dead and say, well, no, this, this Jewish man didn't actually rise from the dead 2,000 years ago. I suppose it's possible to deny that, but still believe in some sort of afterlife. And to think that, okay, yeah, he didn't rise from the dead, but maybe there is something after this life. But if you believe there's something after this life, life beyond death, then why would you be so adamant to deny that Christ could have risen from the dead? Typically, those two beliefs go hand in hand. And they go hand in hand to the point where if you deny Christ's resurrection from the dead, then that ends up limiting our physical, or our life to this physical existence on earth. To say that Christ didn't rise from the dead is tantamount to saying there's no resurrection from the dead, and therefore this is it. This is all we get. Paul makes this connection down in verse 18. Look down there. 1 Corinthians 15, 18. Then, if there's no resurrection from the dead, those also also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's it. That's all they get. They're done. 
And then look down at verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, right? He's saying, look, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, hey, go eat and drink, because this is it, man. This is all you get. And if this is all you get, Paul's saying, I've been an idiot with how I've lived my life. I should be living quite a bit different. And so my question for you this morning is, If you deny Christ's resurrection, then why believe in any sort of life after death? Why live as if there's something beyond death? Why do you think you'll see family and friends again? You can't really base that on anything solid if you deny Christ's resurrection. And so to deny Christ's resurrection is to limit life to the 80 or so years that you get on this earth. And if that's all we get, then I would guess that most of us should be living our lives quite a bit differently than we are. Quite a bit differently than we are. And you can see here, especially in verse 32, that your belief or denial of the resurrection impacts the way you live life in a dramatic way. Whether or not you get up in the morning always thinking about what happens after death, What you deep down believe will happen after death shapes the way you live life this week. It shapes the decisions that you make. And so what are are you believing? And what is your life demonstrating about Christ's resurrection? Will there be something else beyond the grave or, or not? Let's move on to our second consequence of denying Christ's resurrection or consequence if he didn't rise from the dead. Verses 14 and 15, if if he didn't rise from the dead, then none of the Bible is trustworthy. And you may not often think about this as a result of denying Christ's resurrection, but, but Paul actually makes this quite clear. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And so there are two sides of the same coin here, Paul's preaching and the faith of the Corinthians. Now, why would I I go all the way to saying that if Christ didn't rise from the dead or if you deny his resurrection, then none of the Bible is trustworthy? Why would I make that leap? Maybe just the resurrection isn't quite right, but maybe a lot of the other stuff is really good. Well, the reason for that is because Paul's preaching of the resurrection is based on the entire Bible. Look back at chapter 15 and verses 3 and 4, what we read earlier. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. But not just his death was foretold by the Old Testament Scriptures, his resurrection was as well. Look at verse 4 that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so Paul's entire preaching ministry, which centered around the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, was anchored in and rooted in the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, I suppose you could try and make the case this morning that Paul and the other apostles 
fundamentally misunderstood the Old Testament and that Christ hadn't really been raised. And there's a huge problem with that. And the problem is there is a massive historical case to be made for the resurrection from the lives of Paul and the other apostles. I mean, they... For one thing, there were witnesses all over the place who had seen Christ physically raised from the dead, and they're still alive when Paul is writing this. I mean, chapter 15 and verses 5 through 8, Paul lists a whole bunch of people who actually had seen Christ's physical body and interacted with him after he had risen from the dead. And so you could read this letter, and if you you knew for a fact that Christ hadn't risen from the dead, you could go and find these people. Or if you had questions about it, you could go and interview them. No one ever did that because their testimony was reliable. And the apostles certainly didn't live as if they were men who were living a lie. I mean, they lived as if they were men who actually had seen someone rise from the dead. It is hard to make sense of the apostles' actions in the book of Acts and beyond if Christ didn't really rise from the dead. And it's hard to make sense of the massive explosion of Christianity in the first few centuries if Christ didn't rise from the dead. I'm reading a book right now that's contrasting and showing the differences between Christianity's beliefs and the pagan culture around them in the early centuries. And Christianity exploded across the Roman Empire. I mean, it's hard to even imagine how quickly people were getting saved And it was because there was a historically reliable truth at the core of Christianity. This man walked out of the grave, and it made all the difference in the world. It was fundamentally different than any other pagan religion that was being offered at the time. And so it exploded. These men were fundamentally changed by the resurrection, and it demonstrates itself. They were willing to go to death over this. They weren't sort of coddling a lie and deceiving everyone, because you don't go to be crucified upside down as Peter did if you believe that you're, if you, if you're believing a lie. It's something you recant and something you go back on to save your own skin. And so to deny the resurrection is to say that all of these men and women were all confused. They were all hallucinating. They were all misled. And to sort of get back to the overall point here, to deny the resurrection is to say that Paul was confused about the risen Christ and that he misread the Old Testament and misrepresented God. Look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. The testimony of the Bible is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if you can't trust the Bible on that, then you can't trust it on anything. That brings us to our third consequence. This flows right from the second one. The Bible is not trustworthy in any way, and ultimately your faith in anything the Bible teaches is worthless if Christ did not rise from the dead. If the Bible can't be trusted on the resurrection, then no element of our faith is based on anything reliable. 
if you sort of pick and choose what you want from the scriptures, then my question is, why do you get to be the final authority on what is reliable? You are making yourself out to be God and the final authority if you pick and choose what you want to. Either it's all reliable or none of it is. Look at the beginning of verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, your faith in anything the scriptures teach is futile. When you lose the resurrection, you lose faith in anything the Bible teaches, and you lose faith in anything that goes with it. Now, this is a much bigger deal than than maybe you're thinking it is. Maybe it's like, oh, well, sweet, I lose a lot of the teaching of Scripture that I don't really want to obey or want to listen to, or I don't really want that to be true. And the problem with that is, I think people underestimate just how much of the moral, ethical DNA of our culture is anchored in Scripture, even without making a clear connection to it. It is sort of the water we swim in because of the history of Christianity in the Western world. And when you lose biblical authority... When you deny the resurrection and live as if it's not true, then there is no reason to believe any of these other things or hold to any of these other ethical or moral teachings of the Bible. So let me give you a couple of examples. You will hear today a lot of people talk about human dignity, how we're all worthwhile, and we should value people as people. Where is that anchored? What? Why would any person come to conclude that, that we all have dignity? Well, whether you make the connection or not, it is rooted in the biblical teaching that humans are made in the image of God. We have value and dignity and worth because we reflect our Creator. And because God has given us life and because we image Him, there is inherent value to every person sitting in this room. Now, you can still try to sort of believe that if you reject the Bible, if you reject the resurrection. But if you sort of decide to try to believe that, that's all you're doing. You're sort of just picking that out, and there's no real basis for it. It sounds nice. It sounds neat. It might work in some cases, in some circumstances. But you can't obligate anyone else to believe that if it's not based in a higher moral authority like the creator God of the universe. This past week, my family spent the week in South Carolina with my sister-in-law and her family. And we were walking downtown, and we walked by this building where there were these two women painting on the side of the building. And they were painting a sign in big letters that said, let's just love. Now, I don't know what their background is. They may have been believers in Christ. I'm not 100% sure. But that's kind of a mantra that a lot of people are saying now, right? Let's just love. Well, if you throw away the trustworthiness of the Bible, if you deny the resurrection, then what possible reason do we have to just love one another? Like, why would we think that's a good idea? Why? Because it feels good, it feels right, it seems right? And besides that, who are you to tell me to just love? What if I don't want to? What if I want to live a self-centered, selfish life? Why is loving any better than that? 
Why would I sacrifice anything in these 80 years of life that I've been giving for your good? I'm just going to eat and drink for tomorrow I die. And I'm sorry if that infringes on your freedom. That's just the way it's got to be because I'm the center of my universe, right? I mean, what possible reason would we have to just love, for them to tell me to just love, or for you to just love? The point of this is that so many of the things that we take for granted, the water we swim in, are borrowed ideas from Christianity and from the Bible. And when you start to reject something like the resurrection, then you end up rejecting a whole lot else. And you lose a whole lot else that makes our society work and function properly. We live off of borrowed capital from Christianity in so many ways. And we take it for granted that the highest and the best good in this life is to love. Can't we all just love? But when you start to undermine the resurrection and therefore start to undermine the Bible, then you cut off scriptural teaching on so much else. And you cannot sustain it long term because it's not rooted in anything. That's the third consequence. And that's not even the greatest thing that we lose, which is the fourth consequence. Let me show this to you. The bottom line is, if you reject the resurrection, you and I are still in our sins. I mean, this is the core problem here. Look at the rest of verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. To deny the resurrection is to reject the hope of forgiveness of sins. Well, you may think, well, that's fine. I don't really need my sins forgiven. Now, here's the problem with that. Everyone knows and acknowledges that there's some brokenness in the world. We do not live in a perfect world. Everyone knows there's something wrong with the world. Things need to be set right. We have this innate desire for justice and for peace and for community and wholeness. Most people see there's a problem in the world, but most people know intuitively that I'm not quite right too. I have issues. I have problems. I'm not perfect. And those issues and problems need to be set right. The resurrection is God's act of reaching into human history and beginning the work of setting things right. It's his affirmation that Christ's death was accepted for our sins, and it's the reality of the new creation, the time when everything will be set right in the future. That's coming, but it's that time breaking into the present when life overcomes death and life overcomes sin. And if there's no resurrection, then then we don't have any hope of anything ever being set right. We can't expect that it ever will be. There's no hope that anything will ever be fixed or will be made whole. I mean, all those calls in the culture today for for justice and for peace, those are fine calls, and they come from a, a place deep inside of us that recognizes things aren't the way they should be. But if there's no resurrection, then those are empty and vain hopes. It's just not going to happen. 
It's not going to get fixed. And if there's no resurrection, then the brokenness, the difficulty that you are experiencing in your life today, that's just the hand of the universe that you got dealt. Sorry. Rough go at it. Too bad. Tough it up and deal with it. Because if there's no resurrection, there's no hope of things changing and no hope of new life. Then you just get these 80 years and it's hard and then you die. Lights out. There's nothing else. So those are four consequences of denying the resurrection. And in light of those, I want to address two groups of people today to conclude. One group of people, maybe you've come in here this morning and you don't really buy the resurrection of Jesus. You've heard of it, but you're like, "Eh, I'm not really convinced. And I would just ask you this morning to consider this last consequence, that you are still in your sins. I would ask you to consider this regarding the, the forgiveness of sins that you need and the brokenness of the world. Does your philosophy of life directly deal with the the messed up nature of the world? Does it acknowledge the reason for the brokenness of the world? And does your philosophy of life offer a way to fix it? Does it offer hope that things will be set right one day? Does it offer a way for you to be forgiven of your sins, for you to be set right, and for the world to be set right? And so if you come in here and are unsure or deny the resurrection, that's what I would ask you this morning. Wrestle with the way you're living life and if it matches up these consequences. You just have 80 years. Fine, I'll live that way. This is the hand I've been dealt by the universe. There's no forgiveness of sins. There's no hope of things being set right. Okay, I will deal with that. I would ask you to evaluate the way you're living in light of these consequences. There's another group I want to address this morning, and I think this is probably the majority of people in here. Most people in here this morning would verbally affirm the resurrection. If I took a poll, I think probably most of you would say, yes, I believe in the resurrection. Here's my question for you. Does your life, the habits, the patterns, the daily interactions that you have, your hopes, your dreams, your desires, your loves, your affections, does all of that affirm the reality of the resurrection? Can you flip all of these consequences on their head and say, I am forgiven of my sins? The whole Bible is trustworthy, right? Because the resurrection is true, then, oh my goodness, the consequences of that are far-reaching. If Jesus rose from the dead, then everything else in the scriptures is affirmed. And then I need to start listening to what the good news that God has in the Bible, because all of this is true. And so you say this morning, most of us would say we are on one side of that continental divide. We're on the side that affirms the resurrection, and so the water is going to flow this direction. But I would just ask you, do you live consistent with that stated belief? The resurrection changes everything about daily life. Everything is different because Jesus walked out of that grave 2,000 years ago. It changes everything about daily life, and it changes everything about our eternal destination. And so I would encourage you to let it change you today and this week. Let's pray.
Father, these are, these are heavy issues to think through. They're so important. Lord, I pray that you would just work this morning beyond what, but beyond what my words can convey, beyond my inarticulate tongue. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move in our hearts, confirm for us the reality of the resurrection, and convict those who have lived as if it's not true, have lived as if it doesn't really matter, Lord, I pray that you would just hold their feet to the fire and help them to know that they have to make a call one way or the other. They're either living as if it's not true or turning to you in repentance and asking for the forgiveness of sins because it is true. One way or the other, Lord. Help us to see the stark contrast here and then work to help us be on the right side of this divide. We ask all of this in Christ's name.